Welcome to today's broadcast of Practically Political, where pragmatists talk politics. I'm Dave Spencer, and we have another very special guest today. Gloria Borger is the chief political analyst at CNN and appears regularly on the Situation Room with Wolf Blitzer and Anderson Cooper's AC360, as well as the network's other primetime programs. She has been a contributing editor and columnist at U.S. News & World Report, a national political correspondent for CBS News, co-anchor of CNBC's Capitol Report, and has appeared on CBS's Face the Nation and 60 Minutes 2. Gloria, thanks for taking the time to be on the show. My pleasure. I'd like to start out by talking about the whole concept of the quote-unquote news cycle. Not so long ago, a prominent issue or story would stay in the headlines for at least a few days, and people would have a chance to absorb and analyze it. Today, it seems like the media's focus often changes hourly, especially when a tweet from the president pushes everything else aside. What's your perspective on the overall effect of this accelerated news churn on America's political psyche? I think we become sort of schizophrenic, moving from story to story to story. And at the same time, we also become numb to things because there are so many things coming at us at once. I think that as a journalist, it's particularly challenging for us because, you know, I wake up every morning and I take a look at what the president has tweeted, which usually gives me some idea of how my day is going to proceed and what's on the president's mind. is of course, very important to us as reporters uh, in Washington. And the way the news cycle is these days it can change with a tweet. And very often when we have our morning editorial meeting, which we do every day at about 9 o'clock, we know very well that by the end of the day we could be pursuing very, very different stories. And that is not only because of the fact that the president is somebody who likes to sort of throw things up in the air and see where they land, but it's also because of the pace at which the news accelerates. And so we can start out working on one story, and by the end of the day, by 8 o'clock at night by Anderson Cooper, there's another story completely that's the lead. We also have so many major stories that we seem to be covering at the same time these days, whether it's trade, whether it's Russia, the Helsinki summit, for example, or the Russia investigation, or the Michael Cohen story, or you name it. They all seem to be coming at record speed. Well, and that's one of the things that this president has done so well is that there's such a storm of scandals, like there's scandal overload that any of these things individually might bring someone else down, but everyone is so numb. And then on top of that, he piles on by saying that the media is the enemy of the American people and purveyors of fake news. And he's been particularly disparaging to CNN. You know, how do you function as a journalist and a network when the president keeps dumping on you in this way? I think we just do our job every single day. I think that calling the media the enemy of the people is wrong and counterproductive. And I think that all I can do is wake up every day and be the kind of reporter that I've been for the last decades, I'm not counting, <laughs> and try and do my job the best I can and be as accurate as I can and just continue to soldier on because that is what we do. And a free press is very, very important to this country. I would argue that it's important to a president to have a free press. So I think in many ways you just, at a certain point, for me at least, it becomes kind of background noise. 
and I just do my job. And I think that's the way we proceed here at CNN every day, which is to report the way we've always reported and to tell the truth and use facts in the way we use them, which is accurate. And I think it was Phil Graham, who once owned the Washington Post, who said that journalism is the first rough draft of history. And that's what we do every day. It's a rough draft of history, but we try to get it right. And if we don't get it right, we say we got it wrong. And then we move on and we correct it. And I think, in a way, it just makes you kind of want to do your job every day. But I guess it must be harder for you folks because he's refused to specifically answer questions from you. He's barred your reporters from events. I just think there's crossing that line when he does that must make it extra tough for you. You know, it's interesting. I think in a way, maybe, but I think we just do our job. We just do our job. It doesn't hurt me with my sources because they know what kind of a journalist I am, and I'm sure that's the same for the rest of the reporters at CNN who have relationships with their sources. It's not a secret that the president calls us and others fake news. And so it's not just about CNN. It's about the president saying the other day, don't believe the crap you see or hear, and I strongly disagree with that. But who wants to get in a one-off on that? I think we just continue to do our job and let our work speak for itself. In the aftermath of the president's disastrous trip to Europe, he continues to destabilize our democracy and erode decades of diplomacy, impulsively vacillating from denial to confirmation to fabrication. Is there ever going to be a tipping point for this administration? I don't know, and that's not my job. I really don't know. It's not my job to figure that out. I think my job is just to report what occurred. We know that Donald Trump has an 88% approval rating with the Republican Party. He is one of the most popular Republican presidents at this point in his term that we've ever seen. We know that his overall approval rating still hovers in the 30s. But among Republicans and among his supporters, he remains incredibly popular. And so what you see is a president who is really appealing to his base that has always been very important to him, and he continues to do that just as he did during the campaign. I mean, many times with presidents after they get elected, and they were elected with their base, then they try and say, okay, I now have to appeal to the part of the country that did not vote for me. I think with Donald Trump we've seen something very different, which is he wants to keep the promises he made to the part of the country that did vote for him. And in many ways, that is paying off for him because he has retained his popularity with Republicans. He is the clear leader of the Republican Party. The Republicans who disagree with him are out of step now with their own party. So the party has shifted towards Donald Trump and not away from Donald Trump. So it's not as if he's an outlier. He is not. No, no, he isn't. The reason that I have felt so strongly about it, and those of us who have been never Trumpers have always felt that he's abandoning some of the very sacred principles. And I took a lot of heat in 2016 by saying the best thing that could happen to the Republican Party would be for Hillary to win as convincingly as possible because it would force us, as Bob Dole said, to put a close for repair sign on the door and admit that we've become morally bankrupt. And so I guess if even if there's a blue wave and they take over Congress... Is there a realistic place for Republican centrists like me? I honestly don't know the answer to that. I don't know whether a third party is viable. It's clear that the Republican Party, as it's now constituted, is not a place where you sound like you feel very comfortable. And and the Republican Party is the party of Donald Trump right now. And I think it's going to remain that way in the foreseeable future. And 
politics moves in cycles, and so we'll have to see what the next cycle brings. We'll have to see what the congressional elections bring in 2018. Does Donald Trump keep control of the House and Senate? Does he have a divided Congress? Are his people going to turn away from him because of tariffs, for example, in the Midwest? We've seen a lot of outcry about that. These things have to kind of play themselves out, and it takes time. And Donald Trump is certainly acting as if he's raising money, running for re-election. And I don't know who's there to challenge him in the Republican Party, aside from some people who probably can't beat him. So I think for now, the Republican Party is the party of Trump. Yes, what irks me so much is that if you look at Ronald Reagan and even George W. Bush, you could say there was a governing body of principles, there was some philosophy, but Trumpism isn't a set of anything, it's a cult of personality. So when he's gone, what's left for the party? That's a good question. I don't know that Trump is a cult of, he is a personality, but his victory was driven in part by national anxiety about what was going on in the country that didn't have a lot to do with Trump. I mean, you can't discount the anxiety that people were feeling who voted for Donald Trump, who were sick and tired of business as usual in Washington. And that anxiety about Washington and that distaste for Washington is what Trump ran on, and it's very successful and continues to be successful because Washington, I mean, if you look at Congress's approval rating, what is it, 10%? So that, I think, will continue. And don't forget, Donald Trump ran on a platform. And whether you agree with it or disagree with it, he did promise a lot of things that he wants to deliver on and says he's delivering on, on immigration and tax cuts, et cetera, et cetera. So it isn't just personality. It is national anxiety, and that cannot be discounted because the complaints of the people who voted for Donald Trump should not be discounted because they were very real. And, you know, when I was out in Iowa and New Hampshire, I would talk to these voters and I heard how they were feeling about Washington, and I don't think Washington itself has fixed that problem for them, with or without Trump. There's still a real distaste for Washington politicians and politics as usual, and that is something that has to be addressed. I agree, and I think what's most axiomatic in politics is voters don't mind being used but they hate being discarded. And the 20% of the people in places like Wayne County, Michigan, and Delaware County, Pennsylvania, who had voted for Barack Obama twice and voted for Trump and gave him the election, that's the way they were feeling. And I agree that the feelings are totally legitimate. And I think those of us who live these gilded lives on the coast don't realize how hurting and how over the American dream is for so many other people. But that brings me to my next point. And that is, are the Democrats ever going to have an economic message? Because I never saw anything from (laughs) Hillary other than it's my turn. And frankly, for the midterms, I still don't know what their economic message is. Yeah, I think what you're going to see in the midterms, and I think a lot of it gets lost in the noise uh, right now over Russia, etc. But I think what you're going to see in the midterms is a real focus on health care because the Justice Department decided that it wasn't going to defend the Affordable Care Act in court and the pre-existing condition issue. I think you're going to see a lot of Democrats emphasizing the issue of health care. They're going to be emphasizing the issue of trade for those farmers who feel like they've been forgotten. And so I think it's going to vary from state to state. 
but I do think they're going to localize it, and I think you have pockets of issues that they're hoping they'll be able to use successfully against Donald Trump, particularly in suburban Republican districts. You know, you've had, what, I think 39 retirements. Suburban Republican districts are really, Democrats believe, are very gettable. Women voters, there's a large gender gap. You have a lot of Democratic women candidates running. It'll go issue by issue, but I do think they're going to really start emphasizing health care for people because the issue of pre-existing conditions has a lot of resonance. No, and if I were going to, going to give advice to Democrats, I would say that the Connor Lamb model, where you don't focus on the president, but you focus on economic issues that are important locally, I think that's what's going to help Democrats get the House back. But you mentioned uh, my really my final question. It was a perfect segue, and that is to one of the real bright notes of 2018 has been the success and multitude of women candidates. Yeah. And I think that's so refreshing. So. I'd love to hear your thoughts on how you view the growing emergence of women in national politics. I always say at my house, and I raised two boys, that when there's a mess, women come in to clean it up, and that's what happens. And I think that Emily's List said that more than 40,000 women have expressed interest in running for office since the 2016 election. And you have so many more women running. The question is whether they're going to be successful or not remains to be seen. I think the person people are looking at a lot is Stacey Abrams, who's created a lot of excitement, becoming the first black female governor in Georgia, no less. But we'll see how she does. Obviously, there is a gender gap. But, you know, we've seen a lot of gender gaps before. And Donald Trump won a segment of women by more than 20 points, non-college educated white women. He won by more than 20 points against Hillary Clinton. So women are not a monolith here. So you can't say, okay, all women are going to vote Democratic because they don't like Donald Trump. That is not going to happen. That will never happen. But if you have more women candidates, chances are you're going to have more women elected. And particularly in the Democratic Party, you see a huge number of women running. So we'll have to see how that goes. I mean, I've been through a lot of election cycles where we say this is going to be the year of the woman, and it isn't. <laughs> so we're just going to have to see whether the surge in female candidates running for office actually translates into people who win. I agree. And finally, I always like to ask people on the show, what do you see in these troubling and uncertain times? What do you see as the good news coming out of Washington? And what gives you hope for our political future? What gives me hope for our political future is that we go through cycles in American politics. And I'm not that old that I've been through all of them, but I've been through a lot of them. And we made it through Watergate just fine. We have made it through all kinds of cycles in American politics. And I think that the American people, in the end, always do a good job. And I think that with a free press and with an interested electorate, which I certainly think we have, we'll be fine. We're very polarized right now. I mean, that is obviously depressing to someone like you in particular, right, who's a Republican who feels like you don't have any home in your party because it's so polarized. And I think Republicans like you feel that. And Democrats who feel like the party is moving too far to the left probably feel the same way that you do in their own party, moderate Democrats. But I think that the pendulum swings. So you have to kind of take a long view of these things and not just say, okay, this is where we are today and we're in this very polarized time and it seems very uncivil to us. But we've been there before. 
And the genius of our democracy is that we always manage to swing the pendulum somehow back to a state of equilibrium where everybody feels a little bit more comfortable. You know, sometimes you're going to feel less comfortable and sometimes someone else is going to feel less comfortable, but the equilibrium kind of finds itself at some point and then the pendulum starts swinging again. So that's where we are and that's where we'll always be because that's what democracy is. Yes, and I think so far at least our institutions have proved uh, remarkably resilient, which I think is uh, great. Well, that's a wonderful note to end on. You've been listening to our conversation with Gloria Borger, the chief political analyst at CNN. Gloria, thanks so much for appearing on the show. I really look forward to continuing these conversations at some point. Thanks a lot. So that's it for today, folks. I'll see you on our next round of Practically Political, where we go beyond the deluge of everyday news to dive deeper into American politics. I'm Dave Spencer. Have a great week.